Should I say that? I don't want to look stupid. I don't want anyone to know that I don't know this. I'll just figure it out. They don't want to hear from me anyway. I'll just stay quiet. The great Albert Einstein said, Learn from yesterday. Live for today. Hope for tomorrow. The important thing is to not stop questioning. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. This week, we're going to do the podcast in a slightly different format. Usually, I reflect on the work I'm doing with clients during the week, sometimes the work I'm doing within myself, and I formulate the podcast around the themes I'm hearing and the things I'm talking about. But this week, I'm going to take a moment to share some of your feedback and answer some of your questions. So before I get into that, I want to say this. Friends, I am so blown away by how the podcast is doing. Here are some current stats, okay? This podcast is now heard in 25 nations all around the world. We are heard on six out of seven continents. To my knowledge, no one is listening to this in Antarctica, but when I looked at my stats and I saw that Antarctica was missing, I thought, maybe I'll write a podcast for the penguins and see if we can't pull them into the flock. Yes, pun intended. (laughs) But we're in the Middle East. We're in nations like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. We're in the Far East in Vietnam. We're in New Zealand and down under in Australia. We've got friends in South America and South Africa. And hello to our listeners in India, all over Europe. Too many nations to list. But I see you listening and sharing this journey with us. We've got neighbors up north in Canada. We've got island neighbors in the south, in Barbados and Puerto Rico. So hello to you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining every week. This podcast is for you. You're the reason. You're the inspiration. Your courage, your struggles are the stuff of human life and human growth. And I'm so honored to be on this journey with you. Another stat, we're up to 5,000 downloads. Now, in the big bad world of podcasting, that is literally a molecule of a drop in a bucket. It really is. Okay, podcasts, I mean, you compare yourself to the greats and you're just absolutely nowhere. But 5,000 downloads is not anything to shrug your shoulders at. Every week, I hear from you. You write me. You tell me that you're sharing it with so-and-so. My parents started listening. My best friends started listening. My brothers started listening who just came out of treatment. And they're sharing it. And families are listening to this together. And some of you go back. You listen to the episodes again. So I just wanted to take a moment this week and say thank you. I just don't feel like I'll ever be able to thank you sufficiently. I remember releasing the first episode, Growth way back, I guess it was February of this year when I launched this, and I wondered if anybody would listen to it. And I remember totally freaking out with a friend of mine when I hit 100. And then 200, I was just astounded. And then I I just couldn't believe it. And then we hit 500. And I thought, well, shoot, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I can do this podcasting thing. And then we hit 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And here we are, 5,000. We're just going and we're growing. And you are making this thing go. So I'm determined. Here's my role. I am determined. I'm committed. I'm paying attention. I'm present. I want to bring you reliable, relevant knowledge that you can use to develop and nurture your mental and emotional health throughout the week. You all just keep tracking with me. All right, keep sharing this, keep listening, keep sending me messages, stay in this community. It's a strong community now. It's all around the world. Let's keep growing this community. And who are we? We're searching, we're self-aware, and we're courageous. 
like I said, I hope you find one another all across the world. Uh, there's a million things that can transform a human life. There really are. You could interact with nature, with the divine, with yourself in so many ways. But if this podcast plays even a tiny role in your growth, that's what it's for. So today I'm going to echo back what you've sent to me. You know, I've said it a million times. The email address is the podcast at vanessalandino.com. Some of you reach out on Instagram, which is at Vanessa underscore Londino underscore LPC. And some of you reach out on Facebook, which is at Vanessa Londino LPC. Okay. And I'm going to share the questions that I get and some thoughts on each one. Why? Because others' questions are our questions. Our questions are not that different. We tell ourselves, well, stupid people know that already. No, they don't. If other people are asking this, you're asking this. And if you're thinking it, other people are thinking it too. We're all human and we're all wondering the same damn things. So I get the same questions over and over and over again. So today I'm going to answer some of them. I'll just give you some thoughts on them and let's see where it goes. All right, let's dive in. The first question is this, how do I know if I'm growing? What an awesome question. I love this question. It's a fair question too, because all too often we think that if we've learned something about an issue that we're facing, that we won't struggle with it anymore, right? We think that the learning is the healing. It's not. This happens all the time in therapy. Clients ask questions, and they should because they want to learn. But sometimes that process of asking and learning is an intellectual escape from the difficult and messy process of actually feeling their feelings about what they're talking about. Do you follow? We'd rather talk about it than feel it. We'd rather learn it intellectually than do the work to learn it in our bodies. Why? Because it's easier. I've done it. You've done it. We read a book. We learn a thing. And all of a sudden, we know all the things about the thing. And we don't have to feel the thing anymore. But that's not how it works. That's not growing. That's increasing in knowledge, which is important. But that's not growth. Growth requires a shift in how you perceive yourself and the world. And when you shift in how you perceive yourself and the world, you start doing things differently. So that's the first indication of growth. How do I know if I'm growing? Your self-perception is changing. It's becoming more fair, more loving, more compassionate, more realistic, more connected to your story. You've stopped having these totally unrealistic expectations of yourself that you would somehow be perfect if you've had struggles that really threw you for a loop. So your self-perception is becoming more human. Another marker of growth is an increase in integrity. When we're growing, we're more honest, we're less ashamed, we're less apologetic, and we're more real. We aren't performing as much when we're growing. We're facing the fear, we're facing our shame, and we're allowing people to see us for who and what we are. We need approval less and less. So there's a real shift in us. We're moving from the false self, the performance self, to the true self. And that right there is a rise in our integrity. We want less approval. We want our own approval. Why? Because we're learning to love ourselves. We're developing self-understanding when we're growing. We understand our story. We understand how we got here. Gone are the days of who am I and how could I be doing this and how did I get here? No, we know. Well, I'm here because this got ingrained in me at this point and this relationship determined this and all of these things sort of colluded together to make me who I am. So I look at myself today, I look in the mirror and I am no longer shocked, surprised and ashamed, right? We're learning to love ourselves. We can talk about the sticky, embarrassing 
the parts of us that previously were shame-inducing, we can talk about those parts of our lives with little to no shame. It's decreasing. It's decreasing. That's growth. What else is growth? We're talking. We're talking openly, intentionally about ourselves, our failures, our mistakes and fears, but we're also talking about our wins, our beauty, our victory. We're hiding less and we're letting ourselves be known more. A third marker of growth is a deepening in your relationships. Look, 100% of the people, 100%, 100% of the people who come to therapy who want to talk to a therapist are coming because they're struggling in their relationships. It could be the relationship with a parent, a spouse, kids, boss, themselves, very often, all the time, really, themselves. Relationships that stay on the surface reinforce our greatest fear, which is that we're alone. When we're growing, our relationships are deepening. They're becoming more authentic. Why is this important? Because shallow relationships result in chronic aloneness. We need to be known. We need to know others. Chronic aloneness is the setup for depression and anxiety. So the deeper and the more honest our relationships, the more connected we're going to feel. And therapy is all about relationships. The first relationship of my concern in therapy is my relationship my clients have with me. It has to be trusting. It's got to be safe. It's got to be warm. They need to feel like every time they walk in that room, I want them there. And the truth is I do. So we're learning about relationships if we're growing, how to build them well, not just by shared things in common or good times, but actually intentional self-disclosure. We're learning how to nurture relationships. We stop hiding. We don't continue ghosting people. We're not just those people who never return texts and phone calls anymore. No, we're intentional. We know who we want to be close to, and we're allowing ourselves to be closer to them. We're more honest, and our relationships are now forming around the authentic self, not the false self. Now, notice that I didn't say this. If you're growing, you're feeling better right away. Friends, the reason I didn't say that is because I don't lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. And sometimes we really sell ourselves short with what we expect because we want to feel better. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that later. We want to feel better. We want to what? We want to be happy. And we think that's the goal. And when we're trying to grow, we might find it quite elusive. But ultimately, what we experience when we're growing is joy. How can you not be joyful if you are uncovering the layers of yourself and falling in love with every layer? That's growth. The real goal of growth is to become real. Growth means you're becoming you. And if you have good feelings about that, great. But if you don't, you might find that the path is really hard for a while. The good feelings might be elusive at first, difficult to grab hold of, but stay the course. They're coming, and what's coming is so much better than happy. What's coming is joy. All right, next question. What is your favorite book on mental health? I get this all the time. It's a good question, and I have to go with The Road Less Traveled. Those of you maybe 40 plus know this book. It is 
a classic. It's been around for, what, 30, 40 years now. And I read this for the first time in my 20s. I was living in Europe and I was on a tour bus. I was touring a show and I was driving across Germany. And I remember sitting in my little window seat reading The Road Less Traveled with a highlighter. And it was totally world changing for me. I've read it probably certainly every decade since. But, you know, every few years I go back to it and it's still really world changing for me. I learned a lot that year. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the world. And one of the things that I learned from The Road Less Traveled was that suffering was the path of growth. It is the path. And if I could understand my suffering and really mine what it was teaching me, I could find diamonds. I'd grow. I'd progress in my life. So I had to understand that suffering had a role. It didn't mean something was wrong necessarily. It just meant here I am in life and I've got to learn from my suffering. And I also learned that there are principles of being human that by and large work. Now, that's not to say that we need to conform to an ideal or conform to a certain image of how we should be a human being. No, I'm talking much, much, much higher than that. I'm talking about universal principles, things like personal accountability and self-discipline. Now, you might be thinking, Vanessa, aren't those obvious? Well, maybe they are to you, but they weren't to me. I was raised by two survivors, and very often survivors cut corners. So let's explore that a little bit. When we're surviving, we're concerned with one thing, and that is making it. That's what survival means, right? It means to get on to the next day. We are concerned less with how we're living and more concerned with the fact that we're living at all. So think of it this way. People who are starving don't insist that the food is organic, do they? People who are stealing to stay alive don't always ponder the moral consequences of their choices. The goal is stay alive, keep going, live to see another day, whatever it takes. That's survival. So when we're surviving in our lives mentally and emotionally, we will often do whatever it takes to stay afloat and keep ourselves on some semblance of being on track. What does that mean? Well, we might lie. We might hide. We might people please. For some of us, surviving means raging, throwing our energy at other people. It could mean panicking, abandoning ourselves, abandoning others. We might avoid. We might condemn things. We aren't thinking about the quality of our actions when we're in survival. We're thinking about one thing. Get through this, whatever this is. So M. Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, taught me what life looks like when you're not surviving. He taught me what it looks like when you're thriving, when there's time to be thoughtful, when there's time to be intentional and have character. And I'll be honest, it was a while before I could implement a lot of what I read. I was in survival mode when I read that book, but it stayed with me. And it's a really good book to go back to. And like I said, year after year, I do. It really holds up because the principles of mental health he offers are timeless And Peck became like a father to me through the pages. He gave me a lot of wisdom. He was the teacher and the mentor I needed. All right, next question. What is your favorite podcast episode? This is a hard one, and I thought about it. And I think the reason why it's hard is because I pour my heart into each and every one. But if I'm really honest, it's Connected, Not Happy. And you can scroll back through the stack and see that that's the title, Connected, Not Happy. And maybe it's not the best podcast content-wise, but I think it's the most important concept I've ever covered. 
everybody wants to be happy, but so few people understand that happiness is an outcome. It's not the goal. It's an outcome of being connected to yourself authentically and then to others. So I would have to go with connected, not happy. All right, next question. How can I heal my relationship with my child? And I think this was a question about an adult child. Let me just say, I love you for asking. This is a hard question, and this question comes right out of love and pain, doesn't it? So let's talk through this a little bit, okay? Because I do family therapy, and I've had children and parents in my office. I've had teenagers and parents in my office. I've had young adults and parents in my office, and I've had middle-aged adults and parents in my office. And it's a sacred space, Because that relationship is sacred. That's the right word for it. It's primal. So when I'm sitting with a parent and their children, I know that I'm on holy ground. And I tread very carefully and very lightly because the roots of that relationship are what has enabled both of them to survive and thrive in the world. So talking through this, when children become adults, okay, their perspective on their parents changes. Ours did and our kids will. Okay, that's part of becoming an adult. You see your parents differently. If we do not see our parents differently as adults, if we don't see their flaws, if we can't accept their failures, then we have a very infantilized view of our parents. That's to say it's the view of an infant. It's the view of a child. Why? Because parents are flawed. They're human beings. And to notice our parents' flaws is not to say we don't love them. It is simply to say they are human So let me say that again. It's important. When we notice our parents' flaws, it doesn't mean we don't love them. It just means we've matured to the point where we can see them as people and we don't need them to be gods anymore. So when that perspective changes, when children go out into the world, they leave the cocoon of the family home. And their perspective is expanded now to include the workplace, the university, and really the world at large, other families. Maybe they have families of their own. But by the time children grow up and reach adulthood, they've met other families. They know other parents. And they've compared their experience to others and their perception shift. That is a natural course of events. So let's talk about what is ideal. Ideally, parents would be able to hear about these things and learn their children's emerging viewpoints, they're expanding viewpoints without feeling threatened. Why? Because they're interested in growth themselves. By this point, they've had so many conversations with their kids about their flaws, about their failures, about their mistakes. They've apologized to their children so many times because they know they're human and they know their children deserve that acknowledgement and respect that an apology conveys. And so this is not new. By the time the kid reaches adulthood, they've already had these conversations. Does that make sense? This isn't like, oh, for the first time ever, I'm going to sit down and tell my mom, you know, that she did things that hurt my feelings. Friends, if we're in a healthy family system, we've been doing this for 25 years. This is relationship. So when parents are interested in growth, they're not threatened. Their child's growth, their child's need to express emotion, to gain closure, to understand their parents, that need is not perceived as a threat, but rather an extension of the family value. In this family, we're authentic. We have real relationships. We talk about real stuff. And sometimes that means we fail each other. And guess what? We talk about it. That's the ideal. 
That's the healthy family, as you've been talking about it the whole time. When this comes up in adulthood, it's not threatening. Often, though, and this is where the wound is, when children come back to their family of origin in their early or middle adult years, they might be met with a different response. It could be, you know, I sent away this person to college, but look how you've returned, which is shaming. What happened to you? Also shaming. Children start to see their parents' flaws, and these are flaws that the parents have not faced themselves. That's the difference. If the parents have not faced the flaws and they're not on a path of growth, they will bristle. They will be threatened. And when the children speak what they see, the parents become defensive and deny any wrongdoing. So when these splits start happening, the relationship can become very distant and disconnected. Why? Because the child, now the adult child, is not being heard And they could honestly be being gaslit. And what is gaslighting? When someone makes you question your reality. You're perceiving something. You are observing something. And instead of engaging it, instead of saying, well, you know, I can understand why you feel that way. Let's talk about it. No, 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 you're wrong. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I've never been that. That's gaslighting. So the question is, how do I get my relationship with my adult child back? Well, the first thing I would say is this. And this is the first thing we work on when I'm in family therapy with older kids, like adolescents and young adults, even kids. But I don't work that much with little kids. I'd say my youngest clients come in about 12 if if I'm going to do family therapy. You have to listen to your children in a non-defensive way. I'm going to say it again. Parents, hear me. Children, hear me. You have to listen to one another in a non-defensive way. What does that mean? It means to listen without interrupting, without dismissing, arguing, attempting to dismantle thoughts and feelings. Just listen to learn and understand. This and this alone is healing beyond measure. Being heard is the first and the most essential step to having a relationship. This is the foundation is being heard. And if your adult child feels heard by you, you're halfway home. Now, this isn't easy. The brain can go crazy. You can be thinking, well, but I never meant to. Or, you know, you're taking what I said to personally. That wasn't my intent. And why? Because a parent's heart is to love their child. The last thing in the world they want to conceive of is that they've hurt them. And that makes sense, right? But if we're listening non-defensively, we have to be able to say, okay, Of course, I don't like what I'm hearing, but if this is your experience, I want to hear about it. I want to hear how you've experienced this relationship. All of those responses I just went through, you know, well, I never meant to do that. My intention was this. And, you know, well, your father, your mother, you know, we blame the other partner for the dysfunction in the family instead of taking responsibility. No, 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 no. Right. Okay. All of these responses are meant to shut the child down and shut them up. The parent doesn't want to hear it. That's what you communicate to your kid when you're defensive. I don't want to hear what your experience was. It hits too close to home. I can't see myself that way. I can't bear the thought that I've hurt you. I can't live with myself if I think that I've failed at this thing called parenting. So parents who are listening to this podcast right now and having tough relationships with your kids and adult children, I want you to try and hear what I'm about to say, okay? Their gripe with you. You know, in the U.S., we have a saying... Who do you have beef with? Like their beef with you, their issue, their problem with you. It doesn't take away from the good you did. It doesn't take away from the love you gave. It doesn't change the sacrifices you made. And it doesn't strip you of the effort you put forth. 
It doesn't. It just means on the long road of relationship, feelings got hurt. Wrongs were committed. You weren't perfect, and your kid felt it. Your ego got in the way. Okay? That's all it means. It means, here it is, you're human. You made mistakes. And your child is now here, as an adult, eyes wide open, to help you grow. So the second thing I would say is this. You gotta own it. Why? Because it will restore trust. When someone brings something to us that they have against us, if we are in the wrong, okay, if we are in the wrong and we deny it, that is gaslighting. That is causing another person to question their reality when their reality is sound. And it's all done to protect the ego. But if we own it, and this is so cool, hear me when I say this, if you own it, if you're in the wrong and you say you're absolutely right, I know you felt abandoned by me all those years when I was working late. And of course, in my heart, I wasn't abandoning you. I was trying to provide for the family. But you felt abandoned. Of course you did. You were a kid and you had all these things going on. And I'm sure you wanted me there and I wasn't there. God, that kills me. I wish I could have been there. Maybe my priorities weren't right. I wish I had been there, but I wasn't. I had to work. I had to provide. But I understand that you felt abandoned. What are we doing? We're not saying I abandoned you. No, we're just saying you felt abandoned and I recognize that. I can validate that, that you felt that way from your young eyes. That's what that looked like. We are legitimizing their instincts. We're essentially saying to that person, hey, listen, your instincts are good and you can trust yourself. You saw this, you felt this, you communicated it, and it makes sense. What a gift we give another person when we admit when we're wrong. After someone has been heard and you've owned what truth there was, there can be time to clear up misperceptions and misconceptions. You might say, you know, sweetie, I have really heard what you're saying. Do you feel heard? And wait for the other person to say yes. And if they say yes, you might say, you know, I did notice that a couple of things you said didn't really ring true. Do you mind if I clear those up? Can I share with you my perspective on those things? That's how you listen non-defensively. And you can still be heard. And then you share respectfully, openly, without insisting that your perspective be the only perspective that exists. This is so harmful in family systems. This is so harmful in parent-child relationships. You either see it my way or you're wrong. I'm sorry, what? We are two different human beings in relationship. My lens is completely different than yours. Yes, we share DNA. That does not mean we share a brain. So we have to accept the truth that your perspective is a perspective, not a set of facts. And your child's perspective is just as worthy of respect as yours. We're talking about healing a relationship, not conforming one to the other, not getting on the same page, but healing the relationship. So what are we actually talking about? Healing the breach of trust. And then you check in. After you've explained your side of things, you might say, does that make sense? Do you have any questions for me? Remembering that the wounds that have taken place typically happened when that child was a dependent. You have to remember that. You were that child's world. What you gave, they received. What you didn't give, they had no hope of getting. So we remember this when we heal those adult relationships with children. It's not easy to do. 
But if you can be humble, curious, self-aware, and honest, you can win back some trust. And once trust starts healing, you can sit at the same table, you can talk at the same table, you can have that relationship back. All right, next question. How can I get my spouse to go to therapy? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, you could drag them there. Um, You could threaten them and say, if you don't get therapy, I'm leaving you. Trust me, I've seen all of this walk in my door in 10 years of clinical practice. You know, you could gag them and tie them up and chain them to the car and drive slowly while you drag them in and say, this is what you're doing. And that might work, right? (laughs) Just kidding, obviously. Um, Please don't do that. And there's really no way to do this. How can I get my spouse to go to therapy? You can't. You can't. That's not all I'm going to say here. I've got more to say, but you can't. You can't make anybody else do what you want them to do. Remember that part? What podcast was it when I talked about control? If you want to control another person, you're getting really, really close to abusing them. You can't force anybody to do anything, but you have options. So let's talk about that. Before we talk about the options, remember that scene from Aladdin? This just occurred to me. You know when the genie tells Aladdin he can't make anyone fall in love with him? His eyelashes become really long and he bats his eyelashes. This is a similar kind of thing. Okay? You can't make anyone want to go to therapy. You can't make your husband or your wife participate in a therapeutic relationship in any kind of a healing way. You just can't force it. So what can you do? Vanessa, what can I do? Give me hope. Okay. You can do this. Focus on how you feel, not what your spouse is doing wrong. I'm going to say that again. It's important. Focus on how you feel. Communicate what you need. I'm going to talk a little bit about how to do that. Communicate what you need. Focus on how you feel. Don't focus on what the other person is doing wrong. So example, very obvious example. If you are married to an alcoholic and your conversations are around alcohol, you drink too much, I can't trust you to stop after one You need to get help. You need to go to AA. You need to talk to a counselor. You need to talk to an addiction specialist, whatever it is. Okay. You, 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 you. No. This is what it sounds like. Sweetie, the more you drink, the less connected I feel to you. And when you get drunk, I feel totally disconnected from you. And I want to connect with you. I need to connect with you. And I can think of some things that you could do to help yourself with this so that we can be connected. But I want you to know that I'm miles away. This alcohol is the person, the being, the thing that you're in relationship with. It doesn't feel like it's me. And I want to be the closest thing to you, not alcohol. Do you hear the difference? One is accusation. The other is self-revelation. Okay? This comes from the paradigm in couples' relationships, which is the paradigm I work with in couples' counseling, of connection and disconnection rather than right and wrong. We've got to move away from right and wrong as a paradigm. Why? Because if you are the one with the issue, it puts you in a place of moral superiority. And people typically are defensive when you're morally superior. And why shouldn't they be, right? You've got your problems too. But if you come at it from a place of connection or disconnection, you're going to get a much different response. There might be some defensiveness, but typically people think about that more. Well, I don't want to be disconnected from you either, okay? So make it about connection, disconnection, not right and wrong. It's going to make it more difficult for them to argue you too if you make it about connection and disconnection because nobody can argue with what you feel. They can argue with what you think. 
They can tell you that you're wrong. But there's really no room for argument when you're talking about what you feel because no one besides you is inside your body. So no one can tell you you're not feeling what you're feeling or that you don't have a right to feel what you're feeling because you're feeling it. So obviously there's something there that's causing you to feel it, right? So focus on how you feel, what your boundaries are. Sweetie, if you don't get help with this drinking, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be able to live with you. It's too painful to watch you do this. Either I will move out or you will move out, but we will not cohabitate if you continue to drink like this. I can't bear it. It's breaking my heart. See how that's a boundary? It's not telling the other person that they're morally wrong. It's just telling them what you can do or what you can't do and where you're at. Okay? Focus on how you feel, where your boundaries are. Ask for what you need. And maybe suggest going to therapy. Like, I think this would be a good option for us. How do you feel? But that phone call needs to be his or hers. They need to choose to heal. So the leverage that you have is in being totally honest about your own feelings and needs. Okay, next question. Vanessa, I've always been so insecure. How do I develop self-esteem? What a brave question. Again, more and more and more courage out there. And it's hard to admit this, isn't it? It's hard to admit that we feel insecure. Uh, We want to see ourselves as competent and confident and having it all together. So it's hard to really put a crack in that image, I know. A useful place to ask yourself is this. When did I start feeling so insecure? Because children might be reserved. You know, I have a niece who is kind of a shy child, and that's sort of natural. It's personality-driven. There's really nothing wrong with that. Eventually, children do have to learn how to be social to survive in the world. But, you know, we all have different dispositions, okay? But we also took a first step. We also interacted with people. We weren't always hiding behind something, Typically not. Children do have moments of boldness and self-assertion, especially in their twos and threes. So we want to ask ourselves, when did I shut up and shut down? When did I stop being true to myself? And when did I become something that other people want me to be? Or when did I become someone who hides? Okay, so that's a good question. What happened in my life that drilled down into me and made me question and doubt myself? Ask yourself, if you were abused... You don't ever have to wonder why you have low self-esteem. Now, you can change that. You can garner and build self-esteem. But if you were abused and you have low self-esteem, that is one plus one equals two. Why? Because abuse is the killer of self-esteem. Self-esteem is the reputation you have with yourself. And a colleague of mine, Brian Hooper, says that. And I can't take that from him. That's his phrase. But I've always loved it. Self-esteem is the reputation you have with yourself. It's what you think of yourself. Do you esteem yourself or not? Abuse teaches you to see yourself as basically a piece of crap because that's how you're treated. It conveys the opposite message that respect does. So ask yourself, are you always insecure? This is another question. All right, the first question is, When did this start? The second one, was there abuse? Did that convey to me that I'm not worthy of high esteem? The third is, am I always insecure or only sometimes? Are there exceptions? And when do they happen and why do they happen? What parts of you come out in times when you don't feel insecure? What's that like? Does it only happen when you're alone? What are you like when you're carefree, when you're not self-conscious? You know, I remember because I've suffered with low self-esteem myself. And I remember walking into a therapist's office some years ago and I met with him one time and I decided that I wanted him to supervise me and not be my therapist. So he's actually still a very beloved, trusted supervisor of mine. But I walked into his office 
And I relayed to him the reason for seeking therapy. And he's a very gentle soul and a very old, wise man. And I told him all about my self-esteem issues, quote unquote. And he just looked at me and said this. It was the first day I met him. He said, Vanessa, what's so bad about you? And I remember sort of feeling embarrassed, like, maybe I don't have the right to have low (laughs) self-esteem. If this person doesn't think I can have low self-esteem, maybe I can't. I mean, that's how dependent I was. That's how far gone I was. It's like, okay, if you tell me I can have self-esteem issues, I'll have them. But if you tell me I shouldn't, I won't. I mean, it was just, I was obedient. But he did say that. And he said it was so much love. He said, Vanessa, what's so bad about you? But I had to name it. I had to explain the feeling. And I learned later that that feeling I was feeling was just shame. But the things that came out of my mouth were all the reasons why I felt I had the right and even the responsibility to live with so much shame. And, you know, looking back, it turns out I just had normal human flaws. But then he looked at me again, and this is our first session. So I tell him, all, no, I do this wrong and I do that wrong, and I'm convincing him. No, I should have low self-esteem. I'm a terrible person. I'm so weak and pathetic. And he looked at me and he said, okay, so you're human. Now what? Again, he became a beloved mentor and a supervisor. But what a lesson I learned that day. What's so bad about you? And then you list all the things. All right, so you're human. Now what? So think about your self-esteem, again, as the reputation you have with yourself. But ask yourself, is what I really think about myself true? And we just did this podcast on core beliefs, so go back and listen to that. I break this down. But very often, self-esteem issues wither in the light of day. Once you name them and you actually own that what you've been thinking about all these years sounds like this, these are my internal thoughts, we sort of spontaneously outgrow them. We sort of see them in the light of day, and we think, oh, well, that's probably a little harsh. That can't be true. And we might think... You know, there are too many exceptions. There are too many times when I didn't behave in an insecure way. There's too much evidence about my efficacy, my competence. So when you're dealing with self-esteem issues, obviously this is a bigger subject. These are just some thoughts today. But you want to ask yourself, why? What do I think about myself? How did I get here? Are there exceptions? And what would I like my self-esteem to be like? When I look in the mirror, how would I like to feel? All right, next question. Vanessa, when and how should I get off medication? This is a good one, and this is an important one. I'm going to say some words about how to come off medication before I get to when to come off medication, okay? The first thing I tell any client, doesn't matter who they are, who wants to come off medication during their therapy journey with me is this. Talk to your doctor, okay? These medications that we're on, antidepressants, benzodiazepines, mood stabilizers, whatever it is, they need to be carefully monitored as you're coming off because there are side effects of withdrawal. Okay. So in general, I don't ever advise my clients to do anything without talking to the doctor who prescribed the drug. And I generally think it's a really smart idea to do it slowly and let your body acclimate to every step and adjust. Okay. Now, from a therapeutic perspective, not from a medical perspective, because that's a question for your doctor, but from a therapeutic perspective, that's the realm of a therapist, a counselor, you want to really inventory what the drug was doing for you and how specifically it's been helping you so that you can inventory the new skills and habits you've developed that are going to fill in the gap, okay? Life is still going to be hard off this drug. Life is hard and the road is long. You know that. 
but that drug was functioning for you in a way that allowed you and enabled you to get through day-to-day life. So before you decide to stop taking it, you've got to make sure you've got the emotional skills and the support system for everyday life, okay? The question of when is a tricky one. Some people want off their meds because they hate the side effects. They don't want to feel numb. They don't want to feel gray. They don't want to feel dead. They want their sex life back, whatever it is. Some people want their natural mind back. Um, They want to think their thoughts and feel their feelings unaffected by a drug. Some folks want to see if they can do life on life's terms, just do life without the drug, without that assistance. And some people never liked the idea of taking a drug in the first place, so they want to be off it as soon as they possibly can. So if there's some urgency, which is, you know, I want to stop taking this thing ASAP, I want you to just slow down, talk to your doctor, and make this a much slower, steadier process. Okay. Ask yourself why you want to get off the drug. Really understand the motivation here. What benefits do you foresee? What do you think life will be like? What do you think you will be like without this drug in your system? And are you ready for that? What would it mean to you to be off the drug? What do you think it would say about you? And what has it meant to you to be on it? Okay. And I think as soon as you feel ready to come off of it, you're ready to start exploring it. It's not time to quit the drug just because you want to, but it is time to start exploring the subject. So asking yourself questions that will make the transition to a drug-free mind a little easier is a good thing. Prepare yourself for the withdrawal symptoms. They, they likely will come. How are you going to get through those? What's your support system like? And really... Friends, the healthiest way to do this is slowly, thoughtfully, courageously, carefully, and with intention, okay? Put all of that to use, and then put to use what you've been learning in therapy as you're getting off the drugs, and use those new skills, those new emotional skills to fill in the gaps. All right, next question. Why is it so hard to change? (laughs) Well, I'm going to answer this question in two words, and then we'll get to the last question, okay? These are the two words. Why is it so hard to change? Neural pathways. And what are neural pathways? Neural pathways are the chemical reactions that take place in the brain through habituated action. So the more times you do something, the more grooved in the neural pathway becomes. So think about a path. You have a front yard and a path to the mailbox, and every single day, twice a day, you walk there and back. Think of what that path would look like over time. It would be very deep, right? It'd be very grooved in. That's how neural pathways work. So the longer you've done something, the harder it is to do something different. Now let's talk about another neurological phenomenon, which is called neuroplasticity. And the researcher and doctor who's done the most research around neuroplasticity is Norman Doidge. He wrote a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And he referred to the brain as being rather plastic. It has a plasticity to it, meaning it's moldable, it's bendable, it's flexible, it springs back. And these are some words from that book. I love this quote. We must be learning if we are to feel fully alive. And when life or love becomes too predictable and it seems like there is little left to learn, we become restless. A protest, perhaps, of the plastic brain when it can no longer perform its essential task. See, he sees the brain's plasticity as its essential task. That means its bendability, its flexibility is essential to the brain. It's essential. And what is that task? Staying plastic, staying loose, open, Now, it's a known fact that as we age, this is medical science, our brains become less plastic. But the work of aging is to stay open, stay learning, keep learning, 
And that's why today is all about questions. Keep asking questions. Part of, I think, what makes it so hard to change is that we don't want to admit to ourselves that we don't know things. (laughs) Honestly, we don't want to ask. We don't like to admit that we don't know. We don't want to admit failure. We feel like failures if we don't have the answers. And we don't like for people to know that we're still struggling with the thing we're still struggling with. So we don't ask for help. Why is it so hard to change? Probably because we're trying to do it alone. We need to ask questions. We need a support system. And we need to take those risks. So part of what makes change difficult is that we hide, right? We don't want people to see our vulnerability. We don't want people to see us not knowing. So if we can stay humble, stay learning, stay curious, the greater our capacity for change. Okay, last question. Oh, this one kind of broke my heart. What do I do with regret? feel it. Allow it. What value that you currently have do you wish you'd had before? This is the very essence of regret. We've learned something, something we didn't know previously. We didn't know it well enough to act on it. And we wish we'd known then what we know now. This is regret. So maybe we behaved without wisdom, without compassion, without information, without courage, without authenticity, without integrity. Okay. Regret is the emotion that shows up to let us know that we're growing. Think about that. Our minds now, if we're feeling regret, our minds can perceive and conceive of a better way of being and we'd wish we were there before. So we allow regret. I never trust people who say that they have no regrets. To me, it's like people saying, I have no conscience. How do you have no regrets? Not one. Every single decision in your life is a decision you would make again. Now, I get it. You know, well, every decision got me where I am right now. Okay, fine. Life is learning. I get it. But no regrets. I don't know. Maybe I'm too hard on myself, but I certainly have some regrets. I mean, I'm grateful for all the lessons I learned, but I certainly have some. Everybody would do something differently if given the option, right? So allow regret. Learn from it. Ask yourself, What do you know now? And embrace that. And then, so important to resolve regret, forgive the soul you were that didn't know then what you know now. All right, let's pause there. Circling back to Einstein, good old Einstein, right? He's a true scientist, never stops asking questions. And that, friends, is what this is all about. That's why I wanted to read your questions today. I love your questions. I love hearing from you. Discover yourself along the way. Discover the answers as they come. This is just life. It's only life, right? Relax. If you're learning, you're doing it right. So a couple thank yous. Thank you to those of you who are leaving five-star reviews. Thank you to those of you who are writing reviews. They are so heartwarming. I read everyone, and I am trying to respond to each and every email I get, so I will get back to you eventually. But somebody wrote me this recently. Check this out. She wrote, Vanessa, I am rocked by the Core Beliefs podcast. Is there a way to liquefy, condense it, and put it in the water supply of the world? And this is the best part. I listened to it once, and then our family listened to it together. And then she went on to describe in this email in such brave detail how she's seeing that her core beliefs are limiting her and how to change them. And there was a follow-up email with more questions. I loved it, and I'm going to get to all of those. Friends, this is what I love to hear. I love to hear how this podcast is touching not just you, but your families. So if you like what you hear, if this podcast speaks to you, share it with family members. Listen to it together or share it to a family member and then say, let's talk about this. Let's set up a phone date. Share it with friends, churches, social media, wherever you share stuff. But have discussion. Talk about it. 
Now, I don't claim to get everything right. I mean, I am just a woman doing my best, walking my own path, learning as I go. But if this podcast can spur discussion, I'll take it. That's good enough for me. And this email right here, I listened to it and then my whole family listened to it together. This is why I do this. For healing. For connection. In families, in the world. This means everything to me. So thank you, AA. Those are her initials. Thank you for sharing this with me. And remember, folks, you can say it with me. Your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. Ask questions. If you don't know how to love yourself, ask someone how. If you don't know what love is, ask the source. If you don't know how to do your work, ask. The helping hands will show up. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.